This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast, Did You Read? My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times' Opinion Pages. And this week, I'm joined by David Aronovich, Juliet Samuel and Faye Schlesinger. This week has seen the Scottish referendum campaign begin to get real. Up till now, the yes people have been able to fantasise about how easily an independent Scotland will be able to dictate the terms of its separation from the UK. It'll be so simple in everyone's interest to do what Alex Salmond wants them to do. But for the first time, we've begun to think about what that rest of the UK may want for itself. Last week, the Bank of England revised its GDP growth forecast for this year to 3.4%. Is the bank being overly optimistic? The average prediction from dozens of city economists and academics is just 2.7%. Even if the UK does keep up with the bank's expectations, is it really sustainable? With the Chancellor pumping bank credit into mortgages and relying on the resulting house price rises to make us all feel rich come 2015, it looks like a short-term fix. Female genital mutilation is all of a sudden back in the headlines. The language has been potent and condemnatory. Abysmal abuse, violence against women, a dismal relic of barbarism. I agree, but is calling a spade a spade the right approach to this unique problem? Do we risk alienating and driving further underground perpetrators who subject their own children to FGM out of fear, religious belief or even love? So those are our topics for today. And we'll begin, uh, David, with your suggestion of the uh, Scottish referendum campaign that in recent uh, days and weeks really seems to be heating up. And we have uh, had a succession of political leaders in Britain, the governor of the Bank of England, and even the president of the European Commission intervening, all seeming to warn Scotland that if they take this choice to leave the UK, they could be in in trouble. Do you worry at all that this almost negativity, this emphasis on threats, could be counterproductive? It's hard to say no positively, isn't it? I mean, if you look on Twitter, people who support the Yes campaign have a nice little thing saying yes, whereas the people who support the No campaign, they don't have a nice little thing saying no because they're worried about being negative. (laughs) And so you can see that it's initially a kind of a problem. Um, And so people, uh, lots of the Yes campaign will say, oh, well, you haven't actually got anything positive to say. You haven't got a positive vision of the future, largely because the No campaign's positive vision of the future is that 
actually now is the positive vision of the future. Now, what's happened up until now is that the um, is that the Yes campaign, and particularly the, the Scottish government's uh, uh, big, what was it, a white paper or a consultation document on it, portrayed an idea that the separation will be um, a thing of incredible ease, that everything will happen just the way they want it to. They'll be able to stay in the pound, keep the queen, etc., mm. stay in the EU, essentially be pretty much what they are at the moment, except call themselves independent and not have to have Trident and uh, and have a separate foreign policy and so on. Uh, John, John McTurnan in uh, Tuesday's Times had a lovely line. He said that Alex Salmond is basically telling his brave heart enthusiastic activists that everything will change and saying to the rest of the electorate that nothing will change. And, and and you can't really have both of those things. You can't, but it's not an uncommon trick to try and suggest that change is continuity and continuity is change. I mean, this is uh, because people like a, little bit of, like a little bit of both. But what has been missing up until now has been any kind of perception whatsoever about what would actually happen between 2014 and 2016 with the British general election in between. I tried to deal with it last October mm. by saying that there is a rest of the UK factor which becomes extremely big at the moment where you have uh, a potential Scottish yes vote because at that point the Scots MPs drop out of the equation in terms of their ability to influence what happens in the rest of the UK and we begin negotiating the basis on which the separation will take place uh, and at that point English, Welsh and Northern Irish interests will begin to loom very large and that's what's come to the fore during the course of the last week. Would a currency union of the sort that Salmon wants be in the interests of the rest of us in the UK and the answer which has been startlingly unanimous and that's the truth of it really startlingly unanimous all of Salman's own bluff and bluster is actually we wouldn't think it was in our interest and that's a real problem. Faye, you're our um, home news editor at The Times. How much are readers of The Times picking up on this? Is it of interest yet? Are we seeing big traffic on the website? Is there a hunger for these stories? I think there's tempered interest. Those who have always been interested have maintained their interest and especially obviously in Scotland um, if you're of the Yes campaign we get heaps of comments from those people mm. there is still a perception there has been which may start to change now we're getting the you know we had all our leaders come out say as, as david just said you know the no scotland you can't have our pound then we start to get english people saying actually we should be interested in this too ha we were right all along even though they haven't really taken interest up until now i think what's extraordinary we are seven months away from um the vote today seven months today and it's amazing that so many new issues are coming up now with such short time i mean you know it takes longer to to get a divorce and to, and to thrash <laughs> those things out than seven months and it's amazing you had um manuel barroso um saying just this week again totally overturning what we thought we knew we thought that scotland if it if it um, gains independence, will quite easily really get a place in the EU. It'll be did, voted. Did we think that? <laughs> I thought actually thought that because of separatist movements in Spain, etc. Europe does not want to encourage this idea that a country can leave a member state and rejoin. There have been concerns about Rajoy because obviously they've got Catalonia mm. in Spain. They don't want to be setting this precedent that mm. if you break free, yeah, fine, you can get straight back into the EU. But there have been concerns. Rajoy actually hasn't said whether he would oppose, whereas he is opposing, you know, for example, Kosovo and, and that side of things, been heavily opposed. But all the political parties, in my understanding, had basically accepted that all the main um, political parties had accepted that Scotland would get back in. And for Barroso to come out and say it could be nearly impossible to do that is quite a departure. So you're right that there'd been an element of question mark over that, but really he's going much further. And I think... 
I think Salmond has thought that, great, we're going to get all this stuff out now. We're going to have these rows, you know, bring on Cameron up to up to Scotland. I want to have the face-to-face row and it will really get people going and actually it will benefit the Yes campaign. What it feels like is actually this kind of every new statement we get is actually benefiting the No campaign because it just shows how closely our countries are bound together and the complications of pulling them apart. Yeah. Juliet uh, Samuel, you're our financial correspondent at the Times and I'm going to pigeonhole you with my question because (laughs) do you think ultimately the Scots will decide whether they want to leave the uh, union because of financial considerations? Will they be better off staying in or staying out? Or actually is there a a heartstrings dimension to this? Do you think there's more of a romantic uh, message that will prevail in the end? It does seem that the Yes campaign is, is a bit more of a leap of faith Uh, romantic appeal to it so if you're a nationalist you're probably not going to be get too bogged down in all the annoying financial arguments about well how will this work and how will that work because essentially your argument is well we'll work it out and the fact is that you know we'll do it better than we would if we were if we were still in the union whereas if you're on the no campaign side then all, all those practical considerations maybe start to add up and start to worry you a lot and if you're if you're not too sort of taken with this romantic idea of going back to you know Braveheart and or striking out Scotland striking out on its own then those things probably have greater weight yeah and is anyone here in this studio who would vote if they were Scottish to leave the union would you be tempted a sort of a, a sense of a great nation reasserting itself? No, I wouldn't. But then I wouldn't be one of the people who would vote to leave the EU in a referendum in the rest of the United Kingdom. I mean... Uh, and it's it, interesting because a lot of what we're probably seeing in this debate at the moment in Scotland could be a dress rehearsal for this in-out of in Europe some ways debate it could, if it ever nothing, happens. Nothing irritates Scottish nationalists more than you're suggesting that they're the kind of UKIP of <laughs> Scotland. And they say we're nothing like as right-wing. And of course, in a way, that's true. Nevertheless, the kind of impulse is strangely similar, which is that somehow or other, if we could just not be with that lot, we would be in all these kinds of ways magically better off. And the one of the reasons why I oppose, uh, I think, um, Scottish independence and would if I was Scots is because I think that we're in a more interdependent world, not in a less interdependent world. And therefore, this represents, if you like, a kind of flight from reality. I think... Uh, uh, Juliet. Well, it was also striking, I thought, to see... Uh, politicians from Westminster either going up to Scotland or talking about it and saying well look you know you can't you can't pick and mix either you're in the union or you're not I mean it's almost they almost echoed Brussels mm. precisely it was it was amazing to was. see absolutely well look we have to move on to our second topic which is your topic um, Juliet and uh, the Bank of England sort of dizzy optimism last week saying that we might be growing as an economy by 3.4% next year you think that's a little bit above the consensus forecast, and you see that a lot of the fundamentals of the UK economy, things like investment and exports, are not perhaps as reassuring as the headline figures would suggest. So you're a little bit more cautious, perhaps even than our business and city editor, Ian King, who wrote in Tuesday's Times that uh, there was a lot of economic blue sky to celebrate. Right, although he, he, he did sound a note of caution by saying, pointing out to the things that you've mentioned 
productivity and business investment and exports, which really haven't moved at all. And they were the great things that were supposedly going to bring us out of the recession. and The great rebalancing. Exactly, which hasn't happened. And in fact, all that's happened is, you know, the, the turning point really for the economy seems to have been where Osborne gave up on the great rebalancing and just said, fine, we'll just reinflate house prices. So that that's where we seem to be, the direction we seem to be heading in. And in fact, the uh, the 3.4% forecast from the bank, that the official forecast from the OBR, is, which was just given only a month ago, in, well, a bit over a month ago in December, was, was just 2.4%. So the bank is now, you know, much further out of line than, than the OBR's official forecast. Um, although the question is whether the OBR will revise upwards. But even if we do have the numbers falling into line in the next year, does that actually mean that our economy is going to be stronger in five or 10 years? That's the real question and the question that no politician really wants to grapple with because it's very difficult. But from George Osborne's sort of selfish point of view, your view is he'll probably be okay for the next general election. But actually the UK economy's fundamental challenges remain to be addressed. Yeah. There are two, I think, from the kind of non-financial side, those who maybe turn to our news pages rather than our business pages, there are two things that I think are really interesting. One is the way that Carney, as a man, has managed to take people with him. He has totally, essentially, reneged on the forward guidance that was put forward and said, yeah, so we were going to do this, that was my plan, that was a big thing I brought in from Canada. Oh, no, we're not going to do that anymore, we're going to totally flip and we're going to look at sort of um, slack in the employment market rather than straight unemployment figures. You would think ordinarily that that would cause, you know, the whole point has been about keeping confidence in the markets and and giving reassurance and stability. That is a totally destabilising thing to do. Yet somehow he's managed to take people with him, which I think is quite extraordinary and is is helping the coalition massively at the moment because if we had a sense of instability, that would be a problem. Tied with that is the whole issue of statistics and predictions around this because it is a world from the from an outsider's perspective because I don't claim to have a, a brilliantly financial head it's a world of muddlement I mean you've got inflation I think is based on 18 different indicators you've got growth which some people say is at 0% I re- read the other day some people were claiming growth is at 0% and right up you know and where do you put the the markers sort of gro- they were claiming growth was at 0% that was there, some there sort was of cr- crazy crazy ends of the spectrum basically okay. I think this is highlighted by Ian King a few weeks ago actually that basically you can on different factors, different indicators, you can reach different conclusions. And the three You're not saying, Faye, that statistics lie, are you? I'm saying that, we should, I'm saying that it's <laughs> fascinating because we have to rely for... Your, your common person on the street has to rely on other people interpreting these statistics and telling them your, your mortgage is going to stay really low, fantastic, brilliant, but your savings, are, you know, you're going to make nothing on them. And it is incredibly confusing and quite worrying when we get these changes. And it goes back then to confidence. And will we start to see an effect whereby the confidence we have in Carney starts to slightly dilute? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the way you put it was Carney took everyone with him. I I would put it more that the markets ignored Carney. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. They were right uh, because in the end he just backed down. So th- the markets had a view of, of what would happen um, and basically traded based on that. And then he had to alter his position to fit in with that to some degree. How, how come, Juliet, the, the new governor, Mark Carney, has got away with this, really? Because forward guidance was his big new thing, wasn't it, when he came in? And he has really had to change it in very significant ways. But because he looks a little bit like George Clooney, we seem to have forgiven him already. Or is it a bit more complicated than that? Well, the the funniest part of it to me was when he, he was directly asked about this recently. And he said, well, you know, if you're going to be wrong then, you know, it's better to be wrong in the way that I've been wrong, um, <laughs> which is to say the the economy has outperformed his expectations. And, mm. I mean, it, from an economist's point of view, that it sounds absolutely ludicrous, but maybe from a political point of view, that does ring true, because if he had been forecasting great optimistic outcomes and they hadn't happened, then probably People we'd be, would be asking grumpier, more yeah. tougher but, questions. But, but David Aronovich. The question that raises is whether or not sentiment actually follows what economists think or not, or whether it's actually partially independent, and whether or not what you've not got is a sort of feeling that it's actually time that the, the economic bad times were finished. We've done them for several years now. Uh, we've been through the pain, the necessary kind of pain, and actually now has become time not to think about that anymore so much and to assume that um, if we can see a couple of positive indicators that that's the way in which we should feel about it. I mean, I'm almost literally no more sophisticated in the end than that because... Because, as you said, we're talking about a market sentiment and not a set of, uh, and that and that means that, of course, that the bank, the, the governor of the Bank of England, can actually find himself trailing the market mm-hmm. sentiment rather than rather than making it. Uh, if that's true, that's rather. I mean, that in itself is rather interesting. David, before we move on to our phase topic, just one final question for you: How worried should the Labour Party be about this sort of economic recovery? If we're close to anything like the Bank of England says, a three point four percent growth, they have predicated a lot of their political strategy on economic failure. Do they just have to stick with the message they've got, or do they do they have to revisit the fundamentals of their message? The Labour Party had a bigger problem if there was no growth in the economy at all, because that means literally that they can't offer anything to anybody ever. Mm. Okay, um, the Labour Party's best option is if there's significant growth, because their argument then becomes about the redistribution of growth and says, why should the money go with all these wealthy people as we grow again, rather than to you lot, the ordinary voter? So. What the Conservative Party, I've always thought this wants, is moderate growth that enables it to say, steady as she goes and don't Mm. upset the ship, but we're going upwards. What it doesn't really need is a sudden surge in market sentiment that says, yes, there's lots of money sloshing around. Good, we can start spending it again. And who are the party who are best at working out who to spend it on and to redistribute it? Well, Labour is. 
Okay, well, thank you for that. And um, now to our third topic, a very different topic and a much less happy topic, which is the one that you've chosen for us, um, Faye, and the subject of female genital mutilation, which before, I think, in your current role at the Times, you did quite a bit of reporting on for the newspaper. And we are still in a um, place where Britain hasn't got to grips in terms of prosecuting for this offence. And you are worried that in our desire to condemn something which we see as barbaric, we may be in danger of driving people who could be reporting this to the authorities or cooperating with the authorities underground. I think, I mean, the starting point for female genital mutilation is that it's wrong. There's no, there's no two ways about that. Nobody in their right mind will stand up in public and defend it. Even, you know, even sort of um, people who maybe are carrying it out behind closed doors, it, it's except in this country and we've got to a point where people know it's wrong. What my question is, is how we tackle that because what we, I mean, quite interestingly, female genital mutilation is re referred to in some quarters as FGC, which is female genital cutting and not using the word mutilation. There are some cam um, campaign groups and charities that say we shouldn't call it FGM. And what I'm interested in is the kind of language around FGM and what it might be doing. So what we had a very, very strong leader um, a couple of weeks ago in The Times talking about um, how abysmal this practice is. And let's, let's, let's just lay it on the table. Let's say that these are girls who are being mutilated. They are pinned down and their, their vagina are mutilated that's what's happening mm. but is that what you've got is you've got families who believe that this is the right thing to do you might say put yourself in the shoes of a woman who's come over from um, Djibouti 10 years ago she's got a child who's maybe seven years old all her family are back in Djibouti they all carry out um, FGM over there and they believe it is the right thing they believe it's about cleanliness they believe it could, it's not really religious but it can be sort of um, spiritual a spiritual idea and they believe that if you don't do it you're doing harm to your child because she won't be able to say marry people who believe that it's the right thing if you tell that woman if she's listening into our, our podcast today and you're saying this is disgusting what you do to your child it mm. is it is child abuse um, it is horrible she's going to switch off and that's my concern I suppose that those groups of people who still believe it's true if we can't say to them okay we understand why you do this you're not doing it in order to harm, you're going to do it once and you're not doing it again, you're doing it for reasons that you believe to be true and right, that maybe we can get through to them better, because what we've been trying so far is not working. And what Do you have a view as to what that might be? Are you talking about education? Are you talking about community leaders? Um, rather than the emphasis that was in that Times leader that you mentioned with heavy police intervention. Uh, is that where you think we should go as a society? I think there are two possible um, ways to look at, do things that we're not doing at the moment. One is education, and it's quite interesting. I mean, Michael Gove has not said a word essentially on um, FGM at all, and there's quite a lot of pressure on him to do that because um, I went to one school last year that is teaching all primary school children about FGM, or primary school girls about FGM, and it's quite a sensitive subject. They're very nervous that parents will go, I don't want my kid knowing about this. Mm, it's too it's gruesome. So there is an argument that um, we should get it we should just start the conversation about it and start it with young kids even though it's gruesome do it delicately do it sensitively get that going the other thing is I went to um, Senegal last across year across all schools or just in schools in parts of the country where the populations might be um performing uh, this um, Personally, I think all schools. I mean, I think, how are we it's going to not know? There's a lot of it happening in the Western Isles, though, is there? Probably not, and there's probably not a lot happening in Do you know, children this in the Western Isles school. really need to be exposed to this just because Mind we have a, a Scottish decision. Just because it's happening in certain parts of Britain? I mean, we don't 
We don't say when we're teaching kids about um, stranger danger that you're in an area that has a low um, rate of crime and, you know, on this level, a low rate of paedophilia, for example, mm. so we're not going to teach you about it. We say, I mean, you've got, if you've got a kid whose friend is going to be cut or who might meet someone in their teens who's been cut, then why not teach them about it? I mean, it's easier to have a, an all-encapsulating mm. policy. Now, what Gove will never do is put it on the curriculum, so I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but just having the conversation about it. The second thing is getting communities to talk about it and getting them to say, yes, we do it basically and at the moment they can't do that because if they say yes we do I mean partly it's against the law that, yep. that is a, and I'm not suggesting we change that law but at the moment they can't talk about it because they would be immediately grabbed by the neck and that makes it very difficult to discuss Juliet do you have a view on this balance between using the the law and using education and community relations to tackle this Well, I think it's one thing to use the education system so that children who are at risk or are in in a community or no other classmates who might um, be at risk can talk about it. But uh, I don't think I do agree that you have to demonstrate any understanding because I, th- I don't see how you... If you're going to say this is a crime and if we find out you've done it, we are going to send you to jail for, you know, potentially a, a long time, how can you also say, but we understand that this is part of your tradition uh, and you know you're not you don't think you're doing anything cruel to your child I, I'm not sure how we can consistently say both things at the but same at time at the moment Juliet we are not prosecuting we are not sending people to prison so we're having the worst of all worlds and there's no mm-hmm. punishment but there's mm-hmm. no education either is Faye's option of at least trying to shift cultural attitudes perhaps more going to be more productive than a law that is at the moment not being enforced my instinct would be to say we should enforce the law much more harshly than we are currently doing and that maybe the way to make it socially unacceptable is to take a, a, a more that approach basically to say that this is clearly something we do not accept because we send you to jail when, when you've done it. Okay, David Aronovich. I think Faye raises a really interesting and sophisticated point and it's one actually that comes up um, one way or another with all kinds of practices which people have which we've wanted over the years to extirpate or get rid of or change people's minds about essentially what saying absolutely clearly and with the full rigor of the law that it's unacceptable does is it establishes quite clearly a complete boundary and it also means theoretically that those people who see it happening or those people for whom it happens have an absolutely clear recourse to law uh, and to redress uh, underneath the system the system has made it absolutely clear where the country stands Um, And I think actually in the end we probably all agree that that's what you have to do. The question is then what you do underneath that, what you do in the approaches to it, how you try and get people before you get to the stage where you have to invoke the full kind of uh, heaviness of the law upon, uh, before as um, they said in Pulp Fiction, we get medieval on their asses. And this is a really difficult question. It, It would seem to me to be really problematic to teach hundreds of thousands of of children about female genital mutilation. I'm thinking about my own daughters here at their school because 
of a tiny minority of people who do it, it begins to be a bit like the kind of paedophile thing, really, uh, in another kind of a way, which is that, in a sense, for the sake of a relatively small number of people, you create an image of fear and danger and problem around sexuality. I don't have an answer to it, and you may well be right Mm -hmm. in the end. If I were to meet the people that you've met, Faye, or to interview the people that you've interviewed and worked out how it was I was most likely to dissuade them from doing what they're doing, maybe I come to the same conclusion as you. I don't know. Faye, final word to you before we have to wrap up. How do you respond to that challenge from David that we might be frightening people disproportionately um, the, the problem is horrible but we may be overacting it was quite an interesting interview that um, our reporter Lucy Bannerman did with Ruth Rendell um, the other day in which she said that and I say this guardedly um, that children enjoy stories and actually it's parents who are worried about this and that if you teach children in the right way you can get them on board and you can it can become part of them I mean they're taught loads of quite shocking scary things I suppose about alcoholism about um, car accidents that sort of thing and there's probably a way of doing it that that so can recast Grimm's fairy tales as a yes especially Ruth Rendell saying this I, I thought was a so. little bit strange <laughs> I mean look I'm not a parent and it might be if I was a parent I'd say my kid's nowhere near any of this stuff. Don't mm. teach them. Don't waste their maths lessons on this, you know. Mm. So maybe we start in schools where there is a risk. But I guess my, my key point is that, I mean, Juliet talks about prosecutions coming, cracking down harder. It's not working. We are, we are not managing it. And not because they're not, not because our police aren't trying. They are trying. What you find is a girl who's had um, maybe the less severe form of FGM and they can't prove anything. Or she has to give evidence against her own aunt and she won't do it. And so... We can say, yes, crack down harder, crack down harder. It's not working at the moment. We have to find another way of doing it, and that's why I think we have to genuinely explore other options. Well, Faye, this has been your first uh, time on the podcast. I hope you'll come back again, and thank you for raising such an important topic. And what we will do for uh, Times subscribers who are listening to the podcast, if you do go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, as always, we'll link to some of the articles that we've been discussing today on the economy on Scotland, but particularly FGM. The Times has been doing lots of campaigning, lots of investigation in this issue, and if people want to learn more about this incredibly sensitive topic, they can do so via that blog. On the blog, you can also leave comments reacting to some of the things you've heard today. And in next week's edition of the Did You Read podcast, we will try and read some of them out. Thank you to Faye, Juliet, David, my guest, and also Dave Maguire, producer of this podcast. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. I'm Gabriel Marconi, the host of the game podcast from The Times, where we talk football every single Monday. We'll be reviewing the action from the weekend and debating on all the issues of the week. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more details and be sure to subscribe on iTunes. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.